This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. This is the story of Shuichi Harakawa, part two. So this is the second chunk of our occasional look at the contact experiences and ideas and thoughts of a Japanese man named Shoichi Harakawa. And his story was told in subsequent serialized issues of UFO Contactee, which was the newsletter of Japan's Get Acquainted program chapter. That's the organization started up by George Adamski all the way back in the 1950s. And these stories were published in issues uh, throughout the late 1980s into the early 1990s. And even though um, they are published by months, uh, July 86, for example, or um, January of 88, they're not published more than once a year, it seems. And, and so the issues we're going to be looking at today are January 1988, March 1989, and July of 1990. So we'll see what uh, Shoichi Harakawa has to say to the head of the Get Acquainted program in Japan and, and the editor, uh, a man named Hachiro Kubota. And once again, thank you so much to the Japanese Get Acquainted program organization, which I, I think still exists, or at least it did up until a few years ago, for making these things available in English for people like me who don't know how to read anything but English. These stories are a, a strange combination of things, um, sort of lifts of Adamski-style stories, lots of references to Adamski's um, ideas and books. There's connections to current events in some places and some actually kind of odd insights into the thoughts and habits of the space people as we're going to see. Although here in the saucer life, we are completely used to looking into the odd habits of the space people. So let's go ahead and get started. All right, issue number four of UFO Contactee in the second part of the Shoichi Harakawa interview talks with a, a discussion about the need for a contactee to also be a psychic or, or telepath or clairvoyant. And Harakawa says that uh, you have to be hard, you have to train hard to become an excellent telepathist, as he says. He also says some unfortunate psychics are sometimes killed in automobile accidents or by medicinal poisoning. They die from malignant diseases and even kill themselves. Um, he wanted to find a way to acquire telepathic ability without these burdens, he calls them. And he doesn't explain why some telepathists are killed in automobile accidents or by medicinal poisoning, but he had a system of study that he subjected himself to in order to develop his telepathic abilities to a high level. I've been trying to find a good method by studying the ancient Japanese Shinto, Kabbalah, primitive Christianity, Zoroastrianism, Taoism, and so on. Space people have helped me with it too. 
I finally found a basic method to develop the power of mental telepathy to a certain extent. But there is an important point. Although it is easy for you to develop the ability of telepathy, it is important for you to have a high-performance switch in your mind. If your power of telepathy becomes too strong, the switch will not work. Then you will eventually be mad. That seems like a lot, kind of, and a lot of sort of conflicting spiritual traditions there. He doesn't un- doesn't really make sense of the high-performance switch in your mind. A lot of this, I mean, some of this could be down to translation issues, but sometimes the language is just not very clear. Now, Harakawa also tells us that there are two types of UFO researchers, just, just two. You're one or the other, not both. There are two types of UFO researchers. The first type is a man who contacts space people, and the other a man who does not contact them. To contact them requires hard work. What is more, the contactee will begin to have some trouble mentally. Because the planets have a tremendous civilization beyond description, he will have a very strong sense of emptiness after he has returned to Earth. Space people know the situation well, and encourage the contactee by saying, Go to it. You must live on Earth. Few of the contactees taken aboard their mothership become good for nothing after such an extreme experience. I think broadly this idea that there are two types of UFO researchers is is actually not that far off. There are those who study the field and or those who study the phenomenon and there are those who are experiencers and they can they those, I do think those two categories can overlap a little bit but uh, at the same time I, th- I think that that basic dichotomy is is not entirely wrong and what i really find interesting here is this idea that there are contactees who are mentally kind of messed up by having to return to earth when they've seen how amazing these civilizations and societies of the space brothers actually are Now, part of this telepathic power that Harakawa talks about is the ability to see people's auras and not just people's auras, but the aura around the Space Brothers spaceships. He talked, I think he talked in our previous episode and he will a bit later on about the ability to sort of determine whether or not a photograph of a flying saucer is a genuine Space Brother vehicle by seeing this aura. And he has a, a a training sort of regimen that he recommends that people do in order to learn how to see auras or to develop that ability. Hang a sheet of white paper on the wall of your room and observe the paper for about 15 minutes every day. Sometimes you see strange visions on the paper, but you may as well continue without minding it. In about a month, prepare a sheet of paper with a black or golden circle on it. See only the inside of the circle by concentrating on your consciousness. Just look at the circle without desiring any vision inside. Continue to do this for about a week. Then shut your eyes. You can see the vision of the golden circle while closing your eyes. Then visualize any pleasant memories such as beautiful flowers or faces to your liking in the golden circle. When the vision in the circle becomes clear, you now have the power of seeing human aura little by little. That reminds me of those things. I don't know. When I was a kid, there was in like illusion books and stuff like that. Stare at this dot. And then after staring at the dot, the dark dot on the white page, if you look away, you will see sort of an after image of that. I, I don't know if anybody else remembers that sort of thing or if I'm making that up or something, but, but that seems to be something I remember. It reminds me a lot. I, I do like the, um, 
the the idea of of concentrating on faces to your liking in the circle. And you can also use this ability to not just tell people's auras or determine whether or not a flying saucer is a picture of a flying saucer is a genuine flying saucer. You can also use it to see other people's past lives, which is kind of handy. But just staring at the the paper and the golden circle and, and imagining pleasant faces is not going to get the job done. There is another very important component in developing strong psychic ability. Anyway, it is very important for you to have a good feeling under a perfect home environment in developing psychic abilities. If you have a family in disorder and are pursued by uneasiness, you cannot obtain any psychic power. You must have a harmonious family if you want to truly develop psychic powers, such as telepathy or clairvoyance. So if you've got a sad home life, sorry, that's, uh, that's rough, but you're, you're out of luck, I guess. We then move into a discussion of food, and it's interesting because uh, Shoichi Harakawa says we need a balanced meal with a balance of, of animal protein and vegetables, but the Space Brothers are all vegetarians, and he says, when eating a meal together at my home, they stared at me in a queer manner because I was eating some meat, but I don't think eating meat is a sin like they do because it's a natural cycle to make the most of meat for the human body. So Shoichi Harakawa says, yeah, the Space Brothers, who we should emulate in any way, are vegetarians, but I think they're wrong about that. He's then asked about alcoholic drinks. Are they bad for health? No. Some of them are highly estimated by the space people. They told me that Italian Campari, which is often used in making cocktails, is very good for your health. On the contrary, Japanese liquor, sake, is not so good. Beer is also good for your health if you drink it moderately. The space people said Earthmen seem to know just how much drinking is good for their health from a standpoint of common sense, so they should drink alcohol by judging it from their own common sense. Anyway, they did not give me an impression that alcohol is very bad for your health. As for me, I usually don't drink. Rather, the space people advised me, as I have a low blood pressure, that I had better drink a little. Beer is good. Sake is not. Everybody should drink some alcohol. But how much should just be left up to their common sense? People, people seem to know how much booze is good for them, and so they can figure it out themselves. I, I don't think that's necessarily the case all the time. Next, we have a question about how the space people's telepathy might allow them to walk among us undetected and get into positions of authority and mix with people who might know things and generally infiltrate in a good and happy way because they're space brothers infiltrate our earthly institutions and in order to illustrate this uh, harakawa uses a story about a psychic in the soviet union long time ago there lived a psychic man named messing in a soviet he was told by stalin to go to a swiss bank and get thirty thousand francs without a check if you could do it, I would believe that your psychic power is authentic, Stalin said. Messing went to the bank and showed a piece of paper to a clerk. By his power of ESP, Messing made him believe that the paper was a check. He came back to Stalin's official residence with a pile of money. As he approached the entrance of the residence, he strongly believed that he is Berea, the home secretary. The guards saluted him because he looked just like Berea. He easily entered the residence and put the money in front of Stalin, scaring him out of his wits. Stalin gave him permission to perform his psychic show in the USSR, of course. 
Since even an Earthman can do such a thing, it may be child's play for the space people to get necessary official documents. In other words, that it is as easy as pie for them to obtain authentic documents by their wonderful power of telepathy. I'm pretty sure this refers to Wolf Messing. A, um, he was born in Poland, but it was part of the Russian Empire at the time, and then later lived in the, in the Soviet Union. Um, and he was a stage magician and psychic. And his Wikipedia article doesn't include anything about this particular story, but it says that he was able to broadcast what he claimed to be able to broadcast mental suggestions in order to alter people's perceptions and that he was friends with Albert Einstein and Sigmund Freud. Citation needed. And basically, this is just exactly the same idea as behind psychic paper on uh, on Doctor Who. So that's that's kind of kind of interesting. So Kubota asks Harakawa that uh, or or says that Adamski in his book says that money does not exist on other planets. Then if the space people are using our money from working on Earth, does this mess with their heads because they're not able to uh, understand money? And Harakawa says that no, they're okay with it because they're using money by looking at it objectively. They have money like we do, but take an objective view about it and have no real desire for it. They said, the Space Brothers said, quote, money is made from wood pulp and you love trees, so you should love money. Harakawa says, I was greatly shocked to hear that. I'm greatly shocked to hear it too, because it's, it's kind of dumb. Now we have a question of why there's no photographs from inside these spaceships. Harakawa tells us what he tried to do and why it didn't work. When I went aboard a flying saucer some time ago, I tried to take a video camera stealthily, but I failed for they could see through my plot at once. I once carried my cassette tape recorder into a saucer. They seemed to have recognized that, but said nothing at the time. But when I returned home from my space trip and played the tape, it just made a sound that went bone, bone. It was a terribly big sound. I think it may have been influenced by the magnetism inside the saucer. The ink of a fountain pen was spoiled because the ingredients of the ink separated. A ballpoint pen I had did not work either. When you want to carry something to write with into a flying saucer, a pencil is the best of all. A watch gets out of order inside the scout ship. I had a digital wristwatch some years ago, but while I was talking to the space people by telepathy from the ground, I found it went wrong. Generally, when my aura is too strong, watches go wrong and metal goods break. My cufflinks suddenly fell off once. All of that is very much in line with, with other things we've heard over the years about you just can't photograph these things or record them no matter what kind of rig you have set up in your room to watch the aliens abduct you like they do every Thursday night. The technology always sometimes somehow fails. My biggest question about this is how he even dreamed of trying to take a video camera of the size and weight and heft of video cameras in the 1980s onto a spaceship stealthily. How, how do you even how do you even do that? I've got a 1995 VHSC camcorder that was basically, you know, minuscule for the time. And, you know, I, there's no way you can hide that thing. So one of the things that comes about in, in paranormal or, or futuristic or new age literature is the idea that, that the axis of the earth is going to, to tilt or flip. There's going to be a pole shift of some kind, and there's going to be a massive disaster. What does Harakawa have to say about that? 
By the way, Adamski says in his book that the axis of Earth is tilting. It is true, isn't it? Yes, it is a problem that should be worried about. The axis of Earth is like a barometer of all the Earthmen's thoughts. The inclination of the axis is an expression of whether all life is well by keeping their balance or not. You cannot get the right answer if you study the leaning only with physical methods. The inclination of the axis of Earth means man's thought patterns are becoming confused. You mean the inclination is caused by abnormal thoughts of the Earthmen? That's right. Adamski mentions all the important points in his books. If the inclination becomes normal, it shows that the frequencies of the Earthmen are normal as well. It is very dangerous now to live on Earth, but I try to think positively while being aware of the danger. The point is that every man had better change his thought patterns into positive ones such as, oh, that's all right, I will keep on doing good for mankind to put the axis in order. I will live in harmony with others and live a better life. I will make a better circumstance of my home. I will maintain meaningful friendships with friends of mine. Never has the power of positive thinking been so strained in what we expect it to do. Uh, we, we're going to keep the earth from flipping over, folks. We just got to be positive. But really, it isn't all of humanity that needs to, to do this. Really, you just need Japan, which is strange. But Harakawa explains why Japan is so necessary. The space people once said to me, if nearly 10% of the whole population of Japan can sincerely think of man's happiness and contribute to world peace, there will be no more wars. Not 10% of the whole population of the world, but a little under 10% of the Japanese only. They said Japanese people have a greater spiritual influence than any other race in the world. For example, Japan is the foremost country of processing trade. It seems to me that the Japanese have a key to change things easily. If the Japanese become aware of this and positively believe in it, world peace will be brought to realization. Now, there's not much more explanation given to all of this than that, which seems a bit vague. It's just the Japanese are special and we're supposed to just kind of accept that our entire fate as a planet is in the hands of Japan. And so that concludes the first segment, the first interview segment from UFO contactee number four. When we come back, we'll look at what happens in issues five and six of UFO contactee. As usual, we'll be back in a week fielding your questions and comments about this episode. So get those to us in um, the comments section under this episode on the website, on social media, or through email. You can find that website at saucerlife.com. And uh, our Twitter and Instagram handles are saucerlife. Our email is the saucerlife at gmail.com. You can contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Lake, Michigan, 48480. Next time the next regular episode that is we're going to be looking at a, a very odd publication from the borderland science research associates that had some deep impact in the ufo scene it's about gerald light's claims that alexander alexander that eisenhower met aliens at edwards air force base in 1954 we talked about light's letter to mead lane in our episode about the borderland science research associates but this is a whole book that has an expanded version of that story and some very interesting channeled information as well. So that should be a good time. 
If you like The Saucer Life and want to support us and want a little more content than you get just from the free podcast feed, check out the Chizo Media Patreon at patreon.com slash Chizo Media. Here you'll find monthly bonus episodes of both The Saucer Life and our other show, Great Lakes Lore. You'll find other little bonuses. You'll find research sort of blog posts. You'll find some videos and you'll find sort of extended sort of behind the scenes information on each of the episodes we put out. There's a lot of fun stuff over there. The comments are usually fun. The conversation's fun. We appreciate everybody who has contributed to the Patreon. And, and that is again at patreon.com slash media or just follow the link in the show notes. And now let's get back to Shoichi Harakawa. All right, so as we get into the second uh, segment of Shoichi Harakawa's interview, or at least the second segment in this episode, we get his opinion about the story about the small Japanese boy who went aboard a flying saucer that we talked about late last year that launched us into this series of newsletters, these UFO contactee newsletters. And if you'll recall, and if you don't recall, go listen to the episode, uh, the space brothers looked a little different in there than in the classic George Adamski story. And because the Shoichi Harakawa story is basically taken from Adamski's descriptions, or I'm sorry, since he met the same space brothers that Adamski did, you know, there's a variance here. So Kubota gives Harakawa a chance to explain this variance. I think that was from another solar system, because that one looks quite different from the ships in our solar system. What's more, the crew illustrated in the article looks similar to the people from somewhere near the constellation of Andromeda, for when I attended a meeting inside of a mothership from our solar system, there were several types of people from other solar systems. One group of them looked like the illustrated crew, silver hair with a mushroom cut. Their looks were a little strange to me, but I felt their mental level was quite high. I think the crew with whom the little boy visited Egypt in their flying saucer might have come from the same planet, but I'm not sure. Makes sense to me. Uh, Kubota then asks if there are many contactees on Earth, and, and Harakawa explains there are two types of contactees. Some see the space people personally, and others are in communication with them mentally or th telepathy. So the question I've always had, and, and Harakawa kind of addresses it here is, is are, are certain people targeted to receive channelings from the space brothers or what? Um, Harakawa says that this, the thought waves from the space people are always on the air. So sensitive people can pick this up. So they just, I guess they just bombard earth with thought. And some people who are contactees are attuned to this and some other people aren't. We then move to an interesting but cryptic segment called um, Better Not Make a Big Show about false contactees in Europe. Recently, I heard many things about M. Quite a few people seem to believe him. I think I'd better not object to him in the public eye or I'll be in danger. I heard that he had been the director of the Zurich riot by which George Adamski got in trouble. He seems to have been organizing a large group since a long time ago. He used to be a member of Madame B's study group, so I suppose there is some group from D-Order, which is one of the organizations associated with the Black Mason. 
this would-be contactee B is of the same line. He wrote in his book that he had been influenced by the D, and T was once a leader of the D branch. After all, there seem to be some people on the Earth who do not want to welcome the cosmic truth, so it might be the better way for us to act gently and try to let our thoughts penetrate deeply into the world. Claiming the truth loudly may not be the best way for us to take. So the only one of these things I'm sure of is that M is probably Billy Meyer. And when they mention would-be contact E-B, I, I don't is that Billy? So the, there's B for Billy and M for Meyer, but Zurich is in Switzerland. Billy Meyer is Swiss. The Zurich riot, by the way, was um, not really a riot. It was mostly like a wide-scale heckling of Adamski when he was in Zurich speaking back in the early 60s, I think. Well, it might have been the 50s. I can't quite remember. Is Madame B's study group, is that Madame Blavatsky? I, I wouldn't think so. I do not have any idea what D and T are. I, um, it's been a long time since I read any Billy Meyer material. And no, we're not doing a Billy Meyer episode. I am in no mood to get harassed by Billy Meyer types. Uh, there's enough Billy Meyer stuff out there if you're really desperate for it. So there's another thing in here, and, and this term comes up a bit later, and that is the Black Mason. So this is not, you know, an, an actual like masonry worker. I, I think this is a, a reference to Masonic stuff, but it, it comes up in a, a slightly different context in a bit. Leaving aside Masons and false contactees, Harakawa next moves into the very significant topic of volu- volusion, Venusian clothes. And um, yeah, there's, there's really not much to say here, but Venusian clothes. I've seen several types of their clothes. One was like our gown with a belt on the waist, and on the belt was always attached a stone or an oar. They wear this kind of belt with a stone for the purpose of regulating their thoughts, especially when they attend some important meetings. The type of clothes the Venusian was wearing at the meeting with George Adamski in Desert Center on November 20th, 1952, which was choked at the wrists and ankles, is a kind of home wear and also for outdoor activities. The material of this type of clothes is very special. It is soft and luminous like silk and very solid as well, so it can shut out all the vibrations from outside. So when you wear the clothes of such material, your body will never catch any bad frequencies from outside. He also goes on a bit about their shoes, but then veers off to talking about their auras or something. It's a little confusing. I've seen ones like our rain shoes and one with something like golden strings wound up. The style of the most is like ballet shoes. I would like to tell you one more thing about the elders. I could see a golden aura around their heads, even in bright light, which I think every Earthman could recognize. Those are a kind of halos. The aura of every master shows a beautiful golden color. I don't think I will be able to have the privilege to attend such a meeting anymore. Anyway, it was a great experience for me. And one of the really frustrating things about this is that he doesn't explain why he won't be able to attend any of these meetings anymore. That's what I want to know about, not their shoes, not even about their halo. Why can't he go back? Now, one thing Harakawa does explain to us is whether or not there are any bad guys out there in space. Are there any space people coming to the Earth in an attempt to invade us? Certainly not. But there are some space people whose life forms and thought patterns are very different from ours. They visit the Earth once in a long while. 
although they don't intend to invade us, to get in contact with such people is dangerous, according to the Space Brothers. Because they don't know how to get along with us, they will treat us as pets. There are some different space people like this. Do they look like us? Yes, somehow. They're humanoid, all right, but as far as I know, they are very small, what we call dwarf spacemen. These people have not come to Earth so often, as it has been said, about once in ten years. They must have some purpose to visit here, but they are so different from us in many respects that they are apt to treat us as we treat our pets, so they are uninvited guests for us. But unless we get in contact, we'll be all right. They seem to have telepathic ability of a rather high level. They once came to Izu Peninsula in Japan several years ago. Interestingly enough, they usually come over to volcanic zones. They might be attracted to some kind of energy in those areas. They don't make it explicit, but I, I wonder if this is some kind of attempt to, to reconcile the Space Brother paradigm with the Greys. Dwarf aliens, maybe dwarf humanoids, I, I can sort of see the Greys fitting into that. He does say that the, inc- quote, the incident in which dead bodies of some dwarf spacemen have been collected in the USA might well have something to do with them. I suppose they were the dwarf spacemen I mentioned. End quote. So he does seem to be tying in this sort of alien mythos with the broader, more popular alien mythos of 19, uh, 19, well, 1989, March of 1989. And in another attempt to weave the Space Brother mythos into some other elements of paranormal, religious, spiritual sort of theory, Harakawa will now tell us all about the Fatima case or the apparition at Fatima in 19, uh, 1917. And he says that um, the, the Space Brothers know that what the real Christianity is and it's been corrupted by human beings. So the space people are trying to wake people up by using some technique to rebuild genuine Christianity using the Virgin Mary. And then he is asked about the prophecy from Fatima that is being kept secret. The Vatican has the copy, and terrible people have become aware of it and are getting closer to it now. The Space Brothers are keeping their eyes on the movement of the Black Mason in the Vatican. A copy of this prophecy was sent to a monastery in Japan, too, and only the priest there knows the details of it. This fact of being sent was once in the news, but no details were released. It will be dangerous in various respects if the details are brought out all at once. The Space Brothers are keeping alert eyes on the people in the Black Mason who have tried to handle the information these days. Their main strategy at present is not to frighten us directly, but to release the false information. The Space People told me to be careful of this kind of information. I understand there is an information war inside NASA, too. Sooner or later, the Vatican will have to release the contents of the prophecy little by little. So I don't know if I'm on the right track here, but this Black Mason character. I wonder if this could be a reference or a slightly misunderstood reference or a mangled reference to the Black Pope or the supposed you know, Jesuit general who's controlling everything behind the scenes in the Vatican because the Jesuits are the greatest force for evil that humankind has ever produced if you listen to certain anti-Jesuit, anti-Catholic conspiracy theories. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, I have no reason to suspect that other than the word black and their presence in the Vatican. Moving now to UFO contactee number six from July of 1990, another another year later, we get some information about schools on Venus. 
Damsky mentioned there are facilities like our schools on Venus and anyone is allowed to go there and study freely. Is that true? Yes, they are free to go there and study, but their idea of freedom is a little different from ours. For us, the idea of freedom is the state in which we are allowed to do anything we want, but for Venusians, it is the state in which no one disturbs or is disturbed by the others, so they are very polite with each other. And students know when they are supposed to go to school, while teachers know when those students are coming. The teachers never say, do this or don't do that to the students. The idea to control or rule the others does not exist among them, and their schools are filled with serene, peaceful thoughts. On Earth, however, students are apt to grow impudent without their teacher's control. But on Venus, it never happens. After all, everyone knows his own place very steadily on Venus. It is just amazing that they have progressed their mentality or spirituality to that level. Their facial expression, including the children, is so calm and gentle. I understand that Venusian babies don't cry. Is this right? Right. They never cry. By the way, my parents told me that I also didn't cry at birth, which might have meant something. Yeah, it might have meant something, but it probably didn't. We also learn about Venusian music, and this, I, I just, I, I, I just really enjoy this. The Venusians like singing very much, but they usually don't play music of quick tempo. They play mostly smooth and dreamy tone of music. One of the songs I heard on Venus sounded very much like our classical music. I was deeply impressed by all of their music, which really moved me. Their music comes into the heart stream. In comparison, our music of quick tempo, such as the rock and roll or the mambo, moves the lower part of our body or hips first. Between Venusian music and our music, I think there's a fundamental difference in the level of frequency. That rock and roll always causing people to move their hips in ways that are unpleasant and at the wrong frequency. We also learn a bit about the musical instruments played on Venus. They play mostly instruments that uh, have harp-type strings and produce a tone like a koto or a traditional harp-like instrument. There are also some wind instruments, but that most of the instruments, he says, are, quote, very simple in structure but produce fantastic sounds. Once, I was quite amazed at their music with various tones by using only one string instrument. So there's a, 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 there's a thing with one string, not just like one string instrument, a, an instrument with one string, but the string makes a surprising number of sounds. There's also uh, music that um, expresses the vibratory changing process of a stone, which was first in a mountain. It then fell down into the river and was carried to the sea, accompanied with dancing. He says, I was so deeply moved by this music, I couldn't speak a word. Even after coming back to Earth, I would feel quite depressed when I listened to any earthly music for a while. Basically, Venusian music was so impressive that Earth music depressed him, which is really sad. And finally, what I want to close with, there, there's a really long segment on how they draw letters like you know, characters for written language on Venus and what they're shaped like, but they don't actually show an illustration of what they look like. They just describe them as sort of the process of making them. Um, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of confusing. Uh, oh, here, here's it. I'll just tell you the description. A horizontal line is at the bottom and from the center of it runs a vertical line upwardly. And on both sides of the vertical line upwardly, then on both sides of the vertical line are two spots. Just draw that. And show us. Don't make me imagine what the thing looks like. But 
Finally, to finish up, I want to tell you what should happen to treat a hopeless case medically. That's what the, the caption says, the best way to treat a hopeless case. Basically, Kubota, the interviewer and editor, knew of a, an elderly man who was very, very ill, and the doctors were advising the family to take him off life support. And Harakawa, you know, through the information he had, was able to visualize this person and get a good idea of what their condition was and what the spacemen would recommend as far as treatment. This patient has a very slow blood circulation now, and his whole cellular tissues are very much weakened. At this time, what everyone in the family should do is to keep emitting a strong thought wave toward him, expressing cells, revive. And if he still has even a minimum sense of hearing, the family should record their voices saying, try hard and get well, and let him keep listening to it through the earphone. Then a miracle may occur. Even if someone is dying, the family should not emit any negative thought, but should keep imagining his recovered state until the very end, which is what genuine love is all about. So the same visualization and good and or bad intentions that can tilt the axis of the earth can also save elderly people who might be on the verge of death. So is this what they do on Venus? Well, yes, kind of exactly what they do on Venus. So it is what we should do here. As difficult as it may be, what people should do is to believe that there is no disease in the world actually, and that it's just an illusion. On the other greatly advanced planets, although the people have very long lives without any disease generally, once in a great while some old people will get sick. At that time, many people gather around the case and emit their thoughts at a high frequency level toward the elderly together and eventually heal the disease. Besides, they know when they are dying, years ahead, about three or four years ahead in Earth time, but they are not afraid of dying. Their idea of death is totally different from ours, and they have a very dauntless attitude to death. I, I do think it's kind of interesting that even though it's the same basic technique of just broadcasting these positive thoughts that causes positive changes in, um, in, in the health of one of these people, it, it, it shouldn't work the same on humans because humans are not you know, physiologically the same as the Space Brothers. Well, I mean, we are. They're humans just on different planets. But then why do they live so much longer? And I, I think if Harakawa were to answer that, it would be down to this positive thought and positive intention. It's like George Adamski's philosophy with all sort of the philosophical-ish sounding guts taken out of it. It's very bland. It's very um, empty of anything but positive thoughts and good intentions and things like that. So this brings us to the end of, of this adventure with Shoichi Harakawa. Um, I'm hoping he has more adventures in the future. I'm looking forward to learning more about the Black Mason down the road. It's exciting. It's, it's actually not exciting, but it's, it's all we've got with Shoichi Harakawa. Yes, a, a shorter episode this time. Well, anything shorter than our last episode about William Dudley Pelly. It's a it's a compact topic, Shoichi Harakawa's adventures, best taken in smallish doses. And uh, to be quite honest with you, listeners, I am not feeling well. So if if I seem a little bit lethargic, that's why. But I wanted to make sure to get this episode out. So thank you for listening. Remember to send in your comments and questions via the usual social media or 
email channels, and we'll address it on our feedback episode next week. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.